Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by TunnelBear. TunnelBear is the simple privacy app that makes it easy to access a more open internet and browse privately. Go to freetunnelbear.com to try it out now for free. In case you missed it a few weeks back, our editor, Jane Litvinenko, had a news story on our website about the Gameshi trial. What she found out and what she reported was that the judge in the Gameshi trial has a family connection to Marie Hanen, Gameshi's defense lawyer. Turns out that his son works with her brother. They work at the same law firm, a firm called Castles Brock, and they actually work in the same department. And they're not exactly peers. Marie Hanen's brother is a partner in that firm. Justice Horkin's son is a young associate. So it's not exactly like an employer-employee relationship, but it would be accurate to say that Hanen has influence over Horkin's career. And they don't just sort of work in the same department. They've actually worked together. Jane did some digging and found out that they've worked on at least one case together. They were traveling together during the trial. And it's not like we thought that this was a huge scandal. We had no reason to believe that Justice Horkins would like go easier on Hanane in court. We had no information that that was the case. And Jane didn't want to suggest that that was the case. But the information itself, well, we found the connection very surprising. We were also surprised that nobody else had reported it. I mean, this was new information about the biggest trial in memory. And Jane knew that at least one large news organization had known about this connection for weeks and had decided to spike that story. When the media knows something about a news story but decides that it's not the public's business, that is the kind of story that we are usually going to run. And we did. Jane posted the story, and as we anticipated, the public was very interested. We got all kinds of responses. Some people thought that it was a big nothing. No big deal at all. Other people felt that this was a clear conflict of interest, totally hypocritical of Justice Horkins. I mean, here was a guy who excoriated the witnesses in this case for not disclosing details just because they themselves didn't personally think that these were relevant details. And here he was arguably doing the exact same thing. Those were the strongest opinions on either side, but most people were, were somewhere in the middle. Most people who engaged with the story were like me, unsure, curious. I mean, is it normal for a judge to be connected to one side of a trial that they are ruling on, as this judge was? Is it possible that Justice Horkins might have been inadvertently influenced by that connection in any way? And if not, I mean, if that had no influence on him, then why not get ahead of these questions by publicly disclosing it? 
And those questions that I just asked, those questions that Jane asked in the article, those questions that the public was discussing after publication of that article, that, that public uncertainty about whether or not Justice Horkins did the right thing, that is why we should never have published our story, according to many, many lawyers. The reaction to our story from the legal community was some of the strongest reaction. It was immediate and harsh. One attorney publicly called it trash reporting. One of the people that Jane called for comment on the story, a law prof named David Tanovich, gave her not just the legal ethics quote that she asked for, but he also threw in his opinion about journalistic ethics. He said it would be irresponsible for us to even run this story. Jane included that quote in the story, by the way. Not every lawyer that Jane spoke to felt this way, but the ones who were glad for this information to be known would not let us use their names. Everybody else was quite frankly appalled that we would reveal this information about a sitting judge. And I debated this and argued online with a bunch of lawyers who I know and respect, and I still don't see it their way, and they still don't see it mine. And I realized in the aftermath of that story that the media and the law are two different worlds with different cultures and different standards about the same things. Proof, statements, investigations, disclosure, conflicts of interest, all of these things mean different things to a reporter than to a lawyer. And usually, we in the media are looking at them in the legal system. But today, I want to know what they think of us. Do lawyers think that the media does a good job of telling their stories? Today, I'm going to ask a few. Sandy Garasino is a former Crown prosecutor in Vancouver who is now one of us. She is currently an associate editor at the National Observer. Michael Spratt is a criminal defense lawyer in Ottawa and the co-host of The Docket, a great podcast you should check out about the law. His partner on The Docket and in life is Emily Tammen, a former prosecutor and a former federal NDP candidate. And full disclosure, Emily Tammen is also the former candidate for the presidency of the student council of my old high school. And I was too, the same year. Emily beat me for student council president. They will all join me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Nancy Payne, Andrew Ipp, Boris, Philip Leger, Eric, Tristan Cleveland, Suzanne Nell, and Danny Kastner. Danny, why did you decide to be awesome? Because Canada Land keeps it very interesting and Unfortunately, so much of Canadian media seems to be allergic to interesting these days. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. 
And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. This episode is also brought to you by a new sponsor of CanadaLand, TunnelBear. As you probably know, we don't all get the same internet. We here in Canada don't really get as good an internet as people in other parts of the world, you know? Well, you can see the internet as if you were in another part of the world by using TunnelBear, and you can also do so with a lot of privacy and security. TunnelBear is the simple privacy app that makes it easy to access a more open internet and browse privately. It is so easy to use. I just installed it. I was up and running in seconds. You choose a country in the app, you turn TunnelBear on, and you watch as, as, your, as your bear tunnels your internet connection to your new secured location. When TunnelBear is turned on, your connection is secured with AES 256-bit encryption, which is the strongest encryption. You can bypass geoblocking. You can hide your physical location. You can tunnel to 20 different countries and use the internet as if you are in any one of them. Whatever you do online, your activity is shielded from prying third parties, hackers, anybody else. It prevents your internet service provider from monitoring what you do. It has a top-rated privacy policy. TunnelBear does not log your user activity. Even if law enforcement were to force them to hand over their records, they don't have any records about your user activity. TunnelBear has apps for iOS, for Android, for PCs, and for Mac. They have a Chrome extension. It is quick and easy to get started with TunnelBear. You get 500 megabytes of free data every month. I just used this. They didn't even ask for my credit card. You get 500 megs for free if you want more than that. Then you pay. Go to freetunnelbear.com. Just go to it now and check it out. freetunnelbear.com. Try it out. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. Now is the time, guys. I have been saying this on recent episodes. It is tax time. It is time to make that switch so that next year at this time, you will save hours and hours when you're doing your taxes. FreshBooks is the way to do your billing if you are a freelancer or a small business. It is like you have your own accounting department. It is super easy to use. It's almost kind of fun to use. Doesn't matter if you're using the mobile app or the desktop app. This is the time of year where I am so glad I do not have a shoebox of expense receipts because I just take pictures of my expense receipts and I make invoices in seconds. You can customize the invoice. They look great. You get paid quicker. They have found that out. You will get paid quicker if you use FreshBooks. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. 
Try it out for free for 30 days. When you do decide to become a customer, tell them who sent you. You'll be doing the show a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. Should we have held that story? Sandy, do you want to go first? I think so. I think that uh, you were at least one degree of separation from a story where there should there should have been an issue. And by the way, one of the things that was significant to me was in in your the way that you framed the story was well the judge should have disclosed, not that he should have recused, but that he should have disclosed. That's getting into a dicey area and there's another aspect of this, Jesse, that although this was reported by a different reporter, it can't be said that you know, Canada Land doesn't have an interest in this story. So I think you're implicated here. I was quite uncomfortable uh, at the end of the day that that this went out and that it, because it did inflame public opinion in a way that I thought was predictable. Well, just one clarification. We actually didn't say he should have disclosed it. We asked that question. I mean, that, I found that to be an interesting question. Should the judge have disclosed that his son essentially works for, in, in a certain sense, Marie Hanane's brother. That's a question we asked. What made you uncomfortable about us telling people that that was a fact, that, that they did work so closely together, and asking that question about whether this should have been disclosed or not? Well, I think that, uh, like I say, it, it's not as if the son was working for Hanane herself. The aspect about this that's really concerning is that it puts the focus on the judge, many, many in the public would think, oh, the game was fixed. And in fact, that was all over my Facebook feeds and I saw it all over Twitter. It led the public to a conclusion that I did not think was a fair conclusion based on the evidence that there was. And I'm very interested in what Emily has to say about this because she uh, was working as a prosecutor with the Federal Department of Justice, and, um, and I'm not sure, Emily, were you working there when your mother was um, a justice on the Supreme Court of Canada? <clears throat> no, I wasn't, actually. My mother had retired from the Supreme Court before I was working as a prosecutor, but I can say, you know, that growing up, my mother was a judge, my father was a lawyer in a firm in Toronto. As I understand it, she didn't generally hear cases that came directly from his firm, which I think makes a lot of sense, but the, the issue of personal connections between members of the legal community, I think, you know, can't be underscored enough. I mean, there it is a small community. It's important to remember that when we're talking about potential conflicts of interest, there's the question of whether they're real or whether they could be perceived. And I think that's part of the question that Jesse was getting to. And I do think, Jesse, that you were careful in the way you framed it, and you did frame it as a question. But I would tend to agree that in the context of your overall coverage, there may have been many who took it as sort of implying that it was problematic. Michael, what do you think? Well, I agree with Emily as she tells me I usually have to about <laughs> sort of the tone and tenor of, of your coverage. I mean, especially in, in sort of high profile cases like this, that connection here may have been too tenuous. And, you know, there's a real risk that damage to the administration of justice can be done by by asking these questions. Now, of course, that's not a reason not to ask them, but it's a reason to be careful. Maybe you should have gone a step further. You asked, did he disclose it? 
did he? I mean, there's pretrial applications, there's meetings between the Crown and the judge. Was this vetted before? Was it something that the Crown knew? Those might have been important questions to clarify before, you know, lobbing this out there in an atmosphere that was highly charged and, and uh, given the tenuous nature, can potentially do some some real risk to the perception of justice. Well, we certainly know that he didn't disclose it publicly. Letting the public know just how closely interwoven Canada's legal community is, it's all stuff that feels really compatible with what the media should be doing, which is like trying to get these conversations going. But I don't want to stage a debate on that. I want to talk about the media and the law in a wider context, and I think that it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring us back to this point. As people whose lives intersect the legal system and, and the media, as a percentage, how often do you roll your eyes and go, oh my God, they don't know what they're talking about? I'd, I'd say from my perspective out here in Ottawa, it's 50-50 at best, but I will say um, we have some, I think, some very excellent court reporting and criminal justice reporting here in Ottawa. So I think that uh, I might be skewed to the, the positive side based on some of the positive local reporting we have. But uh, yeah, one in every two articles at least has me rolling my eyes and, and potentially getting upset enough to, to write a post about it or to actually do something about it. Emily? I can tell you that when I was working as a law clerk at the Supreme Court of Canada, where the types of cases that are being heard are generally, you know, complex, high level policy type questions, I actually spent a while contemplating whether I might take a U-turn in my career path and become a justice reporter, because I did feel that, and to be fair to the media, I mean, often these are very complicated legal questions that are before the Supreme Court, but I frequently was left feeling that kind of the actual true legal point was being missed in favor of a more compelling narrative that was just easier to put out there. I often felt that um, some of the reporting would benefit from more high-level analysis from legal experts, and to that point, I sometimes find that the people that are being put out by the media Media, as the purported experts are not really the best that the profession has to offer. And I think some better vetting of who the commentator types are that are brought into the discussion uh, would probably assist. Let me let me follow up on that. That's interesting because there is sort of this limited Rolodex that the media tends to have. You see the same faces popping up again and again when you need a legal expert. And like anybody else who decides to make themselves available to the press, sometimes those people have their own reason to want that exposure. What do you find is lacking in the kind of pundits that uh, are, are kind of on the circuit when the media needs to, to ring up a lawyer? I think I just find like to the extent that sometimes there are people that I know personally or by reputation, it's just not always, I think, the people that are best suited to provide an objective um, analysis and to be able to communicate it in a way that's effective. So, you know, I think there's a lot of great people who put them out there, uh, themselves out there on a regular basis, even not necessarily as kind of consultants or to help with the story, but people who put op-eds and others. But I just, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to put my finger on it. I think sometimes it would be helpful to put top quality people with really stellar reputations out there. I find myself trying to uh, read between the lines here. Like, so who, you know, who are the low hanging fruit? Are these the, the, the lawyers who are trying to get attention for their own firms or for their own like secondary uh, jobs as columnists or whatnot? Sandy, I, I often find you on social media, you can get really heated at some of the discourse around legal issues. What, <laughs> what, what do you, and I, I know there's like all kinds of ways the media could get things wrong, uh, but now you've, you've sort of switched sides. You're now an associate editor at the National Observer, what what do you find is the most common mistake made? That's actually such a broad question. A lot of times, 
you can't tell if the coverage is inaccurate or misleading unless you are inside the trial and know the details uh, yourself. As a trial lawyer, you may know because you, because your own case is being reported. You can you can see that something really significant has been missed, but oftentimes it's not apparent. It's not apparent to the naked eye, as it were. I do think that there's so much nuance that is missing, and so many times, and I, I would point to cases like the Omar Cotter case and, and how distorted, the public discourse on that distorded how the media covered it. Tell, tell us, uh, you know, Cotter is a case that people are, are somewhat familiar with, uh, but uh, expand on that a little bit. Tell us uh, how, how you feel people got, the, the media got that wrong and how did that actually, I'm interested in this cycle of how the reporting actually could influence the outcome. Well, I don't know that ultimately the reporting did influence the outcome, but it certainly can create an atmosphere of pressure. Had that case been prosecuted at the initial stage in Canada, I don't think that Cotter would even have been charged. And I've discussed this with other Crown who who agree that based on the facts as we knew them, there was there was not sufficient direct evidence, and there's certainly lots of other evidence that would have suggested that there might not have even been a charge. And, and he got really railroaded all the way along, and it was only at the point really it towards the very very end of the process and i guess he's still he's still in process but even over the bail issues the whole question of terrorism and everything just so affected that case and affected public perception that i think it really distorted the public's understanding of what was at stake and and what the issues were and my hat is off to Dennis Edney, his counsel, mm-hmm. who was pretty much a lone voice in the wilderness on the scene. I think the Canadian Bar Association took a position, but I would have loved to have seen much stronger positions all the way around from the legal community about just how weak that ca- that case was. I'm, I'm interested to hear what um, Michael and Emily have to say about that. It is a good case study in a Canadian context of, you know, what we often turn our nose up at in the state, at states, and that is, you know, pre-trial of, of course, this is uh, the Cotter experience in Canada is post-trial, but sort of this pre-trial publicity, you know, litigation in the media, sort of an oversaturation of, of details that can be rather prejudicial before trial or in, in Mr. Cotter's case before his process here in Canada. Um, you know, something that Emily and I took a look at in when we looked at our podcast series on making a murderer, sort of just looking at how publicity and how this detail that can seep out before it's tested in court, how that can really interfere with with the process. And, and I, I agree that that is likely something that influenced not only the, the public reaction, but perhaps the, the political um, aspect of the Cotter case. Yeah, I was actually just going <laughs> to, Mike just finished off on what I was going to say. I think what complicated the Cotter case you know, even more than your typical high profile criminal case was the extent of the political interference and the political rhetoric around that case, because that obviously influenced the media as well, or it was it was fodder for the media. So and that's not something that we tend to see as often in a criminal case is actually, you know, the attorney general or senior politicians weighing in on a case that's before the courts. You know, the Cotter case is so interesting. I, I don't remember. I mean, this was a, a, a big media event, that trial, but I don't remember 
remember the same kind of procedural, like fine grain attention to detail in that case that we saw in the Duffy trial and, and certainly in the Gameshi trial. And that's not really part of Canada's tradition of courtroom coverage. I, I, people point to the OJ trial in the States as a turning point for the media. And it was sort of tailor-made for cable news and it changed everything. And because we don't have cameras in courtrooms here, it feels to me like it wasn't until like maybe even the Gameshi case, but, but, but Duffy as well, that we had the, the blow by blow courtroom tweeting. Do you guys think that that's a positive progression? Is that a positive development that people actually like in Cotter, maybe people would have benefited to actually have gotten into, so you know, you're not spun as much by the politics or by the anti-terrorist rhetoric. If you're following the, the procedure of the, legali- the legalities and the actual, uh, you know, controversy within the legal community, which it seems like there's a public appetite for. Jesse, I'm so uh, conflicted about sort of the issue of, of publication and tweeting and cameras in the courtroom. I mean, what we do know from, you know, the high profile cases in the United States is that pre-trial publicity, press conferences, releasing evidence before the trial, publishing names of youths before they go to trial uh, does great harm to fairness. And that's something uh, that I think that we've struck a, a very uh, conservative but good balance on on the side of fairness. When it comes to what happens in court as the evidence is coming out, I mean, I followed Duffy uh, uh, live on Twitter. I sat in on the case. I sat on the video overflow room. Um, and it's something, you know, the Twitter coverage of that and Gomeshi is something that I found quite positive. I was able to contextualize these tweets as they were coming out, you know, in, in a legal framework that I'm comfortable with. Um, and so I wasn't, uh, you know, led to sensational conclusions one way or the other. And, and you know, I when I read the, the paper in, in the evening, um, I had a good foundation to, to sort of express opinions on it based on on that Twitter coverage. But, you know, we stopped publication bans being violated. There's, you know, always the, the possibility that that sort of contaminates evidence. And then when we get into actual having cameras in the courtroom, you know, I'm very worried about the damage that that could do, you know, not just because lawyers will grandstand or, or you know, be attention uh, seekers in the courtroom. But, you know, if you put a camera on people, especially in sort of an intrusive way, like we see in the States, it can change the way people act and, and, and the way they deliver the evidence, which isn't good. But at the same time, if we're having live Twitter coverage, I don't know why we would go that next step to provide, you know, uh, an observer as much context and information as, as you could. So I, I'm really torn in it. And I, and I think, you know, it's not all just because I, I look horrible on camera. <laughs> but, I, but I'm going to suggest, you know, I think we have this association of, of uh, the camera in the courtroom as being sort of like uh, fodder for tabloid stuff. But, you know, we have public trials for a reason. There's a fundamental concept there. A series like Making a Murderer involves the public in a greater education and awareness. Even though it's a work of entertainment on a, on a certain level, we're supposed to know how these things work. We're supposed to see what happens. We're supposed to hold – the media was there holding people to account in the case of making a murderer. And that actually is probably going to have uh, an impact on uh, appeals and, and that whole process. I mean, isn't that like a check on, on the legal system itself? Wouldn't it be better if we had a higher level of exposure to the media in the courts in Canada? It's hard because it's such a deeply entrenched part of our legal tradition that we don't have cameras in the courtroom that it's just opening up to that. And to be honest, I would be more comfortable even, I think, with audio or even video than the live tweeting, which personally I'm not a huge fan of because I just think it it can miss context. It's snippet-based. It can be difficult to follow if you're not actually following it live. And I do sometimes have concerns 
concerns that um, it also tends to favor kind of comments that can be viewed as being explosive, but outside of their context. So yeah, I am I am torn about it. But I do think we need to do whatever we can to ensure that the public does have good access to what's going on in our courts in a way that utilizes the technology that we now have. Sandy, M- M- Michael and Emily are, they're both torn. I'm looking for a verdict here. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're, you're a journalist now. So you, you got to be on, on the side of the public's right to know here. You got to be for the camera in the courtroom. I'm, uh. I'm going to assume and I, and I, I, I am I wrong? <laughs> the, the groan suggests maybe. Uh, y- you bunch of Canadians. Someone take a p- position, please. Let me give you an example, okay? In one of the cases that I prosecuted, and this is going back quite a number of years, I had uh, a witness, a minor, she was 15 years old at the time, and she was testifying against organized criminals or gangs in trafficking, a sex trafficking case. This was a case that went over two years because there were multiple hearings and and multiple forums. While she was giving evidence in one of those, in the open courtroom, a classroom of students came in because kids always, you know, teachers are always bringing classes into the courtroom to see what happens, and they never want to go to see the mortgage fraud case. (laughs) They want to see, oh, here there's going to be a gangster sex trafficking. This is really cool. I'm going to go see it. That class was from her school. Oh, my God. Well, that just sounds like a, like a mistake. I mean, when you're talking about sexual assault cases, I think that there's a different standard of privacy. It's a disaster, but you can see how easily. Now, as soon as you have cameras in the courtroom or audio, and, and I, I am completely with everybody here in wanting to see more. The Making a Murderer uh, story, that documentary, is was a landmark. It's incredibly important because it laid bare so much about the frailties of the justice system. It's so important. And counterbalancing on the other side, you don't know the sensitivity of a witness. There are, there are so many delicate issues there, and it is so easy to contaminate how a witness is going to be on the on the stand how they're going to deliver their evidence so much of how we how judges interpret is the is the witness truthful are they sure of themselves are they unsure am i worried about this testimony so much of that is based on non-verbal cues it's based on the witness's demeanor in the stand their tone of voice all kinds of things that is such a delicate issue it can be so easily turned by concerns over publicity who's going to find out about this what are the, what what is the public going to think this is going to be all over the news it's just so delicate i'm afraid i'm unanimously torn with the others <laughs> here you know our conversation so far it's about you know how the public exposure of cameras in the courtroom might influence the process or how the media manipulates this. And the media is such an easy punching bag here that they're going to take it out of context. And that happens. And the the live tweeters in the Gameshi trial, most of them had never been courtroom reporters before. And that's why the publication bans were, were violated. And all of this is, is true. It happens. And yet this idea that it's just the media polluting things or twisting things, manipulating things, making mistakes – it does work the other way around, right? Like the legal system, lawyers on either side, they will manipulate the media. 
And, and Michael, you talked a bit before about how lawyers will make statements before a trial that the police will have a big show, uh, show the, the drugs, the guns before a trial. I've gotten invitations from lawyers in criminal cases, come to the courthouse steps. I'm going to give you a scoop. I'm going to give you a revelation. There, there's a constant desire on the part of lawyers and the legal system itself to, to, to spin the media as a way to change the public narrative, uh, because that does have an impact on outcomes. I mean, I think that any lawyer who, uh, a defense lawyer who is trying to litigate their case uh, through the media is likely doing uh, a disservice to their client in in the legal sense. Uh, a good example, we don't know the verdict yet, of course, but a good example is the Duffy case. Every time he opened his mouth, every time he tried to spin things before his trial, his, you know, giant speech in the Senate, you know, where there wasn't one monstrous conspiracy, but two, and, you know, uh, alleging that, you know, arms were twisted and, and he, he was dragged into this uh, kicking and screaming. All of that did damage to to his trial. Um, it limited his defenses. It boxed him in, and you know it, it tipped his hand. And that's one of the only advantages a criminal defendant has that we don't need to disclose anything. We don't need to make any statements. And I've yet to meet a judge who would be uh, swayed by that sort of you know pre-trial publicity. And when it comes to juries, I think likewise, if you're litigating things in the media and it's that high profile, uh, a jury uh, trial is risky under the, the, the best of circumstances. So any defense lawyer litig litigating their case in the media is, is on shaky ground to start, I think. Is it appropriate for, for a, uh, a criminal defense attorney to be trying to rehabilitate their client's public image? I mean, I think the lines do blur because it is entirely appropriate for defense counsel to, to speak out after a case to, to highlight inequities or problems in the system. I mean, one of the things that sort of has, has been under my skin for a while here in Ottawa is that there's no continuing legal education for the, the Ottawa police. I, I often speak out about sort of that lack of training, the lack of the respecting of rights, you know, for the fact that, you know, every, every time that we see the police officer violate someone's rights in the court, room, that it's happened thousands of times to innocent people, mostly, you know, racialized uh, minority groups in, in, you know, back alleys in the middle of the night that no one ever hears about. That is entirely appropriate to, to speak up about. And, you know, some of that crosses the line into, into rehabilitating reputations or contextualizing the case. Uh, largely, it's sort of a, a larger public good, too. That's really interesting, Michael. I mean, you know, you say that you have all this scrutiny for the cops. Where's the training? If a person who seems guilty walks, everybody gets angry. The media reporting seems to get outraged on the behalf of the citizenry. Here's a criminal who was allowed to walk free, but nobody follows up with the cops to say, well, why did you make that technical error? Or why was there that charter violation? How are you protecting our safety if you're making those kinds of mistakes? And then how many other people are getting their rights uh, tread upon who are not guilty? That seems to be, to me, a place for the media. And I wonder, and I'm going to put this uh, to, to all of you, and Emily, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts first. Is the media overly deferential. We show up when there's a press conference. We show up when on the courtroom steps for the for the scrums. A lawyer says, oh, I've got a scoop for you. We, we, we show up. We act as if what happens in the courtroom is the be-all, end-all. You, you've got courtroom reporters like Christy Blatchford who are almost worshipful 
of the criminal justice system, of the police, of what the courts do. And yet when we look at these high profile stories in the States, making a murderer or serial, these cases that the public has become familiar with, it's the media actually challenging the courts and saying, you got that wrong and and, and applying scrutiny and and sort of a, a check and a balance against the courts. Is that something that we need to kind of get a bit more diligent and proactive about as the press? I mean, I think the it's really important for the media to do whatever follow-up they can. So if you're going to go to that press conference and air the images of the guns and the drugs, like you'd better be prepared to follow it through. And I think if the police conduct is then called into question, I think that's a really, really important story. But I do think that one of the problems is a lot of this can be very difficult to get on the media or anyone else's radar. You know, there are the cases where there are gross violations of of a person's rights that never make it before a court. You know, there are never even charges at all because the police themselves recognize that the case isn't going anywhere. And those are the ones that I think are the most problematic because the people who are the victims of the abuse of power by the police don't really have a lot of recourse. I mean, if you're an accused person, your recourse is a charter application to have evidence excluded and ultimately seek, you know, an an acquittal uh, as a result. But if you're someone who is shaken down by the police and searched in an alley and have, you know, just your personal integrity violated like that, and then you're not ultimately charged, it can be very difficult, I think, to get the type of exposure um, and to air those types of issues. And I think it's great to see you know, right now, grassroots movements that are really looking to expose, you know, abuses of power by the police, which is important. But I do, you know, to be fair to the media, I think it can be very, very challenging short of a, of a person coming forward. And often these are very marginalized people, so they may not even have the networks or the contacts or even know how to go about contacting the media when their rights are violated and they do not become the subject of a criminal charge. Sandy, should we in the press be more critical of the courts? I think that... Uh Critique is always healthy, but it needs to be informed. And this is, it's so significant that one of the film, of the two filmmakers who made Making a Murderer were, was a lo- trained lawyer herself. It is the job of media to be critical and to, to scrutinize. And having a clear understanding of the context can can only help. Otherwise, it's also very easy to inflame a situation and perhaps make things make things worse just by throwing a light on something without any context and it can it it can really destroy reputations. So I'm concerned about that and I'm also concerned about what Emily is talking about is the degree of below the radar violations that are taking place by law enforcement, I know that there's a degree of investigatory techniques that are being undertaken that would not pass the charter test, and they're not actually geared towards a prosecution because the police know they're not going to be able to meet the charter standard. That's where the media needs to be informed. Well, I just wanted to say, too, that I think, you know, while it is important for the media to be to be critical and to, um, you know, ask questions about um, our institutions. There's all, it's also incumbent on the media to help find the voices that can give the necessary and important context as to why our legal system maybe is the way it is in a way that is for the public good. And so I think, you know, the media has to be careful not to get swept up in tides of public outrage, where in fact, maybe there there's a responsibility on the media to help the public better understand um, aspects of the system that, you know, are, are good. 
it's so funny, you know, I, I feel like all of this happens at once. There was, uh, and I guess there's just no avoiding it that the Gameshi case is going to come up in this conversation and, and maybe bookend it. But yes, there, there there was and continues to be inflamed rhetoric on both sides of people who feel uh, that things went wildly wrong or wildly right. There's all kinds of misinformation and blame going around. And yet I've never seen such an en masse educational experience about, I mean, I didn't know that these women had no lawyers who had any standing who are defending them until this uh, case happened. I mean, when you get the public engaged in the process like this, you're going to get the good and get the bad and you're going to get people talking. I mean, I don't know what the option is. I mean, I, I hear so much reservation from all three of you about you know, should we tell the public about these conflicts of interest or, or, or non-conflicts, why they're not a conflict? Should we tell the public, uh, should we have cameras in there? Should, like, should, should this be, uh, should all of this play out on the public stage and the fear that it's going to become a media circus or be taken the wrong way? The only option though is to, is to not do that, is to keep that information from the public. And I, I have to imagine, and maybe this is my bias as a member of the media, that ultimately it's better to have this all go through this process as imperfect as it is. Michael, what do you think? The problem is it's not beneficial, and I don't think it's good enough to just raise a question. I think there has to be uh, a digestion and uh, sort of an analysis of it. And, you know, to take it back to some of this in-court stuff um, that we're talking about earlier, maybe that's actually some of the problem that I have with Twitter and, and just broadcasting what happens in court. Anyone can watch it, but I think the media is really good role and what the media can do and should, I think, maybe do a bit better job on is not just take information from the police, take information from the court, take information from the defense, but there should be some digestion of it, some analysis of it. And, you know, that would lead me to buy more newspapers, I think. <laughs> and just and just raising the question is itself a kind of, I mean, that that can really impugn somebody's character when you just say, oh, I'm just I'm just asking. I'm just asking. Because look, even me, who who read your piece by Litvinenko uh, on the relationship between the judge's son and Hennon's brother, even in my shorthand, you know, having coming at it a few weeks later, it was like, oh, you, you said that he should have disclosed when actually the piece said, oh, I was just raising the question. But look how quickly that jump, that synapse happens. I can't um, be held responsible in, in, for you misreading <laughs> Jane's piece, Sandy. No, 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 no. Well, hang on, hang on. I'm, I think, I don't think that's actually fair because you know that by just raising the question, you have thrown the reputation of this judge into question. Should he have done it? Now it's an open question. His reputation is in question. Everyone's reputation is in question. Why is that a forbidden thing for us to discuss or debate? If it can be debated whether or not the witnesses should have kept, should they have uh, introduced information that they felt was not pertinent to the case and they were taken over the coals for keeping that to themselves when they didn't think it had anything to do with whether or not this guy punched or choked them. Couldn't all of this been avoided if, if he had taken the opportunity beforehand to say, look, 
I'm going to explain to the public, this is a teachable moment for the public as to why this is not a problem. And this is such a high profile case and public perception of access to justice and whether or not the system is rigged is so important here to get straight that I'm going to put this out there beforehand so that there are no questions. But people see it coming out of Canada land and they associate us with, with we didn't say that this was some huge expose or a scandal. This was information we thought people should have. I, 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 I don't see how we could take, I'm sorry, this is, we're trying to have, is inevitable that we're going to have this, now, have this discussion. Now we're getting to the real point here. <laughs> we will report that every time. If the, if the, it, we will try to give as much context and analysis as we possibly can. We were very clear that the legal community thought that this was not a big deal at all. We were not trying to make more of it than it was, but we will report that every time. Okay, Jesse, let me ask you this question. Did that article disclose Canada Land and Jesse Brown has an interest in the outcome of this trial? That we have an interest in the outcome of this trial. I think that I think that Canada Land's relationship to this trial is a matter of public knowledge. Though I'm always for more disclosure, so perhaps we could have been more explicit about that. Though I think that it is pretty well established that uh, Canada Land has been reporting on this, and that I was one of the journalists who broke the story in the first place. Do I have an interest? In Gameshi uh, being convicted, I don't. I don't feel that that's accurate. Well, but but the, but this is exactly the point. I mean, I think that you're closer to this story than Horkins than Justice Horkins is to Marie Hennan. That's why I recused myself and gave it to a, a completely competent reporter to, to to report this herself. Who is not independent of Canada Land, which is clear to anyone reading oh, it. Pff, I, oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> simmer it, down, simmer down, friends. I think we can all say that if it was a jury trial, I may not have selected uh, Jesse Brown as juror number one. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Sandy? Sandy, I, I was. This was a story that I did not want to have an exclusive on. It would have been so much better if it had come out through a very sober through the Globe and Mail. And apparently, everybody knew that this was the case and didn't report it. I'm very uncomfortable with journalists knowing something like that and keeping it to themselves because they don't trust the public with the information. That's what we exist to do. It's, uh, but 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 again, you're being again, you're being very selective about the information. Did for instance, there there are multiple trials where where judges have relationships, more likely to have relationships with the Crown, actually, because so many judges come from the ranks of the Crown. I would report that up and down. I have so many questions about the Michael Bryant case and all of these relationships. It is such a small community. The public needs to know more about how interwoven all of you people are. I mean, <laughs> that then, is something but, but, that... But, but, then you're, but then make the story about how much, about generally, and, tell, and, and use more examples... And how much did you explore the question of, well, did the judge also have relationships with the Crown? Because the judge also has worked for the Crown in the past, as I understand it. And there may be other relationships. This was a very focused and, and very focused discussion of one key relationship, which actually was, to, in my estimation, too far distant. It just was too far distant to be a story. And I, that's probably why the other media didn't report it. Well, I, I think it's, there's nothing about this conversation that we're having now that was stimulated by our reporting that I feel is irresponsible or endangering the system or the public. I mean, this is all healthy stuff by my estimation. I'd agree with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I, I really, I, I, I like, I, it's turned into a debate and I, I welcome it. I think it's a good one. Uh, I'm going to ask you guys one last question. As officers of the court, current or past, I, I, I'm going to ask you to take a position. Don't be so Canadian. Take a position on this, please, each of you. If we look at these two different processes, a criminal trial, which is a process by which the court is trying to determine whether an accused person is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And then we look at a journalistic investigation, the process by which the media is trying to find out what happened. Broad take, which process reveals more truth? As a defense lawyer, I'd maybe start from the different perspective and say which process is more fair. Um, <laughs> I think that, that... That's not the question that I asked. <laughs> I think I would say this. I think that if you're looking for more information is more truth, then of course the journalistic process will get more truth. But of course, the journalistic process can take into account information that for a variety of reasons would never make it into court. So journalistic, more truth, but not necessarily more fair. I think the distinction between justice and truth is, is an important one, but... but uh but I agree, Michael. Emily, what do you think? Well, I think, I mean, it depends on the quality of the journalistic reporting, for one thing. I mean, it depends how balanced it is. It depends how in-depth it is. I mean, I think a really high-quality investigative journalism probably gets closer to the true truth than a criminal trial. But I also think that criminal trials have way more factors in play. And when you have the, you know, the the overbearing weight of the state against you as an individual. Uh, there are rules of procedure in place, and those rules are for a reason. And I think most people would agree that the ultimate goal of a criminal trial is not to find the factual truth exclusively. It's to do that within a legal framework. So, you know, I think um, unfettered, high-quality journalistic investigation probably is better at finding the truth, but I wouldn't want that to be the approach that we use to adjudicating the guilt or innocence of a person. That answer is so much smarter than the answer I just gave. And, and, no, and no one is suggesting that we should. But Sandy, you've seen this from both angles. Uh, without all of those rules and procedures in place and now a, a different responsibility just to get the truth out about what you write about as a journalist, uh, which process do you find has allowed you to get more truth out there? I would, I would say that... Uh, I, Again, where we're excellent investigative journalism is probably better at getting at the truth, the question of what happened, than a criminal trial. But, counterexample, the Gomeshi case, and I'm not going to talk about whether what, he, what happened uh, between Gian Gomeshi and the complainants Heaven in forbid that, trial, that we should talk about but that. But was it not the case that in the course of a criminal trial, very significant facts came to light that had not been revealed and had not been disclosed in extensive investigative journalism. Yeah. That is absolutely true. There were facts that did not come out in my investigation or, or, or anyone else's. Whether those facts are relevant or not, well they, well, they were certainly relevant to what played out in court. Guys, from my very, very biased and subjective <laughs> position on this and all things, uh, it's been delightful speaking to you all. And I, I really appreciate this. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Thanks Jesse. That was your Canada Land show. I hope you liked it. You can email me. I read them all. I respond when I can, and I am at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at Canadaland. 
Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday, and the next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. I make this show with Katie Jensen. If you like what we do, please support us.